You're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand, where we get under the skin of history, ideas, individuals and notions that define our time, or at least my time. Today I'll be talking to Alistair McGrath. Alistair McGrath is a best-selling author, Anglican priest and professor of science and religion at Oxford University. Once an atheist himself, he gained a doctorate in molecular biophysics before going on to become a leading Christian theologian. He's noted for his work in historical theology and the relationship between science and religion. Among his best-known books are The Twilight of Atheism, The Dawkins Delusion and the critically acclaimed Invent in the Universe. He's married to his wife Joanna and has two children. Thanks very much for coming in Alistair. Great to be here Russ. Is it it's an unusual journey is it from like I, I imagine the journey from uh, f- faith to atheism is a conventional one in secular times. Less common isn't it for, to come from a grounded, rational, seemingly position of atheism to one of religion. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened, please? Yeah, I guess it does seem a bit irrational, a bit strange. But, but, but for me, you know, I began by thinking, you know, everything is very straightforward. I'm doing science. Science makes uh, God redundant. There's no place for God in the scientific universe. Um, science doesn't tell us anything about meaning or purpose, but hey, we don't need those. I can face up to that. And so in many ways, I just felt this was, this was right. And then I was sort of forced to reconsider things when I began to study the philosophy of science and just began to realise that things weren't as straightforward as I'd thought. And that, that didn't make me religious, but it sort of made me think it's not as straightforward as I'd thought. And it kind of way initiated the pathway of change as I began to wrestle and rethink. Philosophy of science, because isn't science uh, wholly about empiricism, about evidence, about proof, about double-blind tests? So is the philosophy not just that, that which is evident? that which can be proven. What do you mean, philosophy of science? Well, you're right. You're starting from things you observe. But the question is, how do you make sense of them? And one of the problems is that very often there, there are multiple ways of making sense of observations. And one kind of way bubbles to the top, and then after a while you begin to realise that actually it's not the best, another comes along. So, you know, 100 years ago we, we thought the universe had always been here. Now we think it came into existence. Kind of way science changes its mind in response to new evidence and also new ways of thinking. So science is on a journey. It hasn't arrived yet. And as it journeys, it does change its mind from time to time. Science by its nature can, must continually evolve and must eschew dogma. Is that right? But is that not always the case? Is there, is there dogma with it? What particular branch of science? Biochemistry, biomolecular studies. Is that what you do? Yep. What is, it, what is that, please? Well, that's really looking at how uh, complex biological systems work at the, the cell level or the molecular level. But it's, just, it's a good example of a science which, in effect, is trying to make sense of complex phenomena. I read this thing this morning in a book by His Holiness Dalai Lama. He said that, he said that, there's, that, that, not, that a flower has, on a molecular level, no particular component that is flower, that there is no... What was it? Uh, what was that? Word uh, not determined, uh, dependent. It's dependent on our th- on thought that we are somehow mentally compose the concept that the flower is dependent on other aspects, other molecular aspects, and our thought for its flowerness. So, what what is it that you? Uh, am I mangling that dreadfully? And do you even know what I'm talking about? Is that a thing? 
What you're getting at is, look, we, we, can, we can understand the science of um, how flowers grow, but actually when we look at a flower, there's something about it that strikes us, that gets us excited, that makes us say, that's beautiful. And science doesn't take you there. It helps you understand how things work, but it doesn't tell you what they mean or indeed the impact they have on you. What was it that you discovered in your work in a biomolecular study that led you from atheism, uh, which perhaps we can say is a rationalist, materialist, mechanical understanding of the world that all can be observed and understood, to a position of faith? I mean, you're a priest now, is that right? That's right, yes. What happened? What did you see? What happened? Well, I guess some of the things that happened were this. One of them was was gradually realising that, look, I want to believe stuff that can be proved, that's reliable, not as any old stuff, but stuff that really makes sense. And one of the things I began to realise was that actually the really important things in life lie beyond proof. I mean, you can prove proof to to makes four, but hey, it doesn't give you a reason for getting up in the morning, you know. So you need something that is existentially significant, that actually gives meaning to life. And as I thought about this, I began to realise you could prove shallow truths, and the sort of thing that doesn't really make that much difference. But the really big things, like what's life all about, what is the good, these, these lie beyond proof. We've got to go beyond what we can prove to lead meaningful lives. And once I saw that, kind of way the landscape looked different. That really opened up new ways of thinking. So it wasn't as a result of like you weren't one day in that this is like you know someone who doesn't understand much about academia or science or laboratories, and most of my understanding of science comes from the song "The Monster Mash," i.e., I was working in the lab late last one night. Uh, so like you weren't just working in the lab late one night. You saw some molecular formation that made you think, "Hang on a minute, there must be some conscious authorship going on here." It wasn't that. It was a philosophical musing that you'd long been ruminating on, on the limitations of scientific method to provide real answers. Yeah, you've got it. Basically, just realising, look, there's so much more than what science is able to deliver, and it matters. How do I get hold of this stuff? How do I go beyond the limits of science to take hold of stuff that really matters? Can we do it? And so that, that kind of way is a way of thinking that moves you in new directions. Can I read some stuff here that's uh, from the uh, research on you, so I make sure that I've done a thorough and proper interview? Alice was born in Belfast in the 1950s. How come? Uh, well, it, it just happened. That's you know, this is how being Where born Where were you works. before you were born? <laughs> Where was your consciousness the moment before conception? I don't know. No. I mean, I don't know. What was your family doing there? Well, I mean, my I suppose more prosaically. Well, well, well my, my mother was a nurse. My father was a doctor. And I grew up in Northern Ireland, and it was all very exciting. Bloody hell! Like fifties. What was going on in the fifties in Northern Ireland? That's sort of like a, a decade or so. But you must have been there during the when it properly kicked off. It kicked off in the sixties, but during the fifties, there was this deep sense: Hey, the war is behind us. Things can only get better. And this pervasive spirit of optimism, you know, we're on a roll, things are going to get better. And you're looking back on that, I I have a deep sense of nostalgia, but also a deep sense of, why did we think that? You know, in in other words, we we almost wanted to believe that that we'd put bad things behind us and the world's looking much better. How Uh, can you be like such a committed Christian when you grew up in Belfast in the 60s and saw the, what sectarianism does? Well, that's why I was an atheist when I was in Northern Ireland. Ah, In effect, you know, my argument went like this. You know, when I was an atheist as a a younger man, you know, 
if there was no religion, there'd be no religious violence. End of discussion. You know, it, it seemed mm. very, very simple at that time. Um, but, but certainly one of the reasons I was an atheist until I went up to Oxford was basically that I'd seen Northern Ireland and it just seemed to me that that showed that religion was a malevolent, malevolent social force. And I think, you know, that that's the kind of argument that certainly Dawkins and Hitchens would use. And actually, yeah. you can see why, you know, on its own, it's very powerful. I mean, it's more that needs to be said, but certainly that's what I thought as a younger man. Why is there this tension between religion and science? Is it because of Galileo weren't treated properly? Well, he wasn't treated properly at all, and, and the loads of others, who I'm sure, weren't either. But I guess the part of it is, is this struggle for cultural authority. You know, in other power. words, power. It's all about power. Who do you trust? Who, who's, who's the top guy? And I think that one of the things historians are beginning to do is kind of just revisit this and say, hey, we haven't really taken this seriously. This is all about you know, power. And in many ways, when you start doing that, you begin to realise you can take these things to, apart. Can you give me an example of that, where historians are looking at uh, science, philosophy, scientific discovery, and f- find that it is more dogma than evidence? What do you? How how is that being looked at? How is that being? Well, taken lots, apart? You, you can look at some of the big key debates, like Galileo, like Copernicus, like Darwin. And when you start doing that, you realise that very often these have kind of been angled or framed in a certain way to serve certain agendas. When you when you look at them more neutrally, you begin to realise that actually there is a debate going on here, which is about how you hold science and religion together, and that's a debate that's always underneath the surface. Can you give us a potted uh, breakdown of each of those, Galileo, Copernicus... And Certainly. I mean, Galileo was, was this great Italian scientist who, in effect, um, was quite convinced that people like Copernicus were right and that actually the, the, the sun was at the centre of all things, the earth went around the sun and moved away from the older idea that kind of way uh, everything revolved around the earth. And some said, look, this is, this is, the Bible says otherwise. Why are you saying this? And Galileo was saying, well, look, it's not that simple. The Bible has to be interpreted and maybe we are inter- interpreting the bit simplistically. Let's <laughs> revisit this. Let's see if, in effect, science helps us to to read the Bible rightly. I see. So, Galileo, Galileo, prior to... What was it like? What was Copernicus's... uh, Is that Hellenism, is it, when you think that the sun goes around the Earth? Is that Yeah, that goes back to Ptolemaeus, one of these great early Greek astronomers. And Ptolemy just said, look, um, this way of thinking about things, everything revolves around the Earth, makes good sense. But they didn't have very precise ways of observing things. They couldn't measure things very well. And as they became better at this, they began to realise that system just didn't work. They needed something better. And that's a core theme of science. You know, if a theory can't map onto observations, you've got to rethink the theory itself. It might not be right. And so in many ways, Copernicus and Galileo were saying this way of thinking... In effect, Earth goes around the sun, makes much better sense of the observations than the other way around. So from based on simple observation, I, 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 and perspective had to alter. And there was, there, we, we can't deny that there was resistance to that, right? Like he had a bit of a tough time of it, old Galileo on that basis. But you, do you think that this has somehow been misreported and misused and realigned to give science in some sense undue authority and to sort of further pillory a religious perspective? Well, I think the church got this wrong. I think that, that, that they were far too hard on Galileo. And indeed... What happened? Were, well, what happened was basically they, they prohibited 
prohibited him from public teaching. I mean, it didn't um, do anything very nasty to him. But I think even that was unfair. And what I notice is that, for example, you know, John Paul II, the Pope, you know, way back now, but basically he, he in effect, apologised, said, I've got this wrong. We need for science and religion to have a conversation. Yes, I understand. So, like, it seems that what we're describing so far is that there was an entrenchant theological position about, uh, thank you, the, in, in this sense, someone just bought me coffee, thanks very much, so essentially about creation. And that position is uh, altered because under observation and under scrutiny, it didn't hold up. I mean, but you're saying that Galileo went, all this, you know, God created the earth in seven days, try and look at it as a bit more allegorical. And uh, don't take it too seriously. Is that basically what Well, Galileo saying? wasn't the sort of six-day creationist or anything like that. I mean, Gal- Galileo was saying, look, what's the best way of making sense of our world? And he, he holds to the idea that, in effect, the idea of God is something that explains things. It really makes an awful lot of sense. But that we've got one aspect of it wrong. We need to rethink the relationship of the Earth and the Sun. But he, he in effect, fits this into his big picture, which is that of an ordered universe created by God, and that by studying that order, ordered universe, we can figure out the rules that lie behind it. So that's where this idea of the laws of nature come from, the sense that that, that universe is regular, there's something there we can get our hands on, discover and explore. Do you think the continual and ongoing discoveries of laws is in itself an indication that there is some form of intelligent design. Is that part of what your journey from atheism to faith has been? I don't think anything proves the existence of God like that. What you can say is much more, if there were a God, isn't this kind of what you'd expect? It's much more about, in effect, here's a theory. It's saying there is a God, God's like this, and then here's what we see in the world, and actually these map onto each other well. So in effect, it's it's about a resonance between the theory and the observation. Not proof, but a kind of chiming in. Now, my... What I think is interesting is that specifically you have become an an Anglican priest because, like, uh, I can see how there are are and will always be limitations to what can be materially and mechanically understood in that just in the most basic spatial terms we're dealing with seemingly limitlessness and we have a limited ability to understand information so at some point faith will always be required we'll never fully understand our condition but what is it in particular about christianity that you found uh, not only not oh God appealing seems too light a term. What what do you think? There's some whole truth, some divinity in Christianity. Well, I wouldn't want to say Christianity has got everything absolutely right, but I want to say that it's got some insights that are really very, very exciting. I'm going to tell you one, one that actually yes. made a big difference to me. And, you know, I'm not doing down any other religion. I'm just saying here's something about Christianity that really struck me. Here, here's what I thought when I was an atheist. Mm. If there is a God, he's up there, outside time, outside space. Yes. I'm in space and time. So that God has no relevance to me at all. He's in a different place. And then Christianity has this idea, the, the idea of incarnation, that God enters into history enters into time, enters 
into our world. And if that's right, and of course we have to discuss that, but if that's right, it's a game changer because it means that a God who was thought of as being way beyond anything actually came into this world and that actually makes him accessible. And to me, that, that's one of the ideas that I find really exciting when I began to explore it. And actually, if it is right, it does change the way we think about God. What, what, what makes you think that it might be right? Well, I guess there are a lot of things. I mean, I mean, one of the questions is, you know, how, how do you make sense of what happened to Jesus Christ, who he is? And, you know, I was talking about scientific theories a while back. I mean, basically, theology does the same thing. It has theories to try and make sense of what you observe. And for Christians, the best way of making sense of the life and death and so on of Christ is to say, in some way, this is about God entering into the world. So Christmas for Christians is never just about remembering Jesus' birth. It's also about something deeper that lies behind that, that we're dealing with a kind of God who chose to dwell among us and knows what suffering and pain are like. So it's quite an important idea. But you're right. I mean, we've got to talk about this. It might not be right. Yes, because given that we have to selectively analyse scripture and decide which bits are cultural inflections of the time of its construction, which bits are metaphor and which bits, I mean, if any, are historical fact, it's an interesting position that we find ourselves in as people of faith in that we become curators somehow creating an assemblage of appealing and relevant ideas because i think the atheist case is one that is easy to understand so much about religion is causing violence and conflict so much of what was reportedly about helping people was about getting power and building institutions and creating dominion loads of it most of it the most important things can never really be proved and science has created all these disciplines technology medicine that solved the problems where mankind most needed them to be solved with dealing with death dealing with disease dealing with fear science 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 connection communication healing all of these problems seem to be you know uh, uh, have been uh, resolved and where they haven't been resolved it's coming to a laboratory near you soon we we're on it we're on communication we're on eternal life we're on the hereafter i suppose what i find where i find myself is when like you know i'm not i don't know much about christianity really but when i think like of the uh, like uh the way to the kingdom of heaven is through me um and and your idea of an incarnate or the christian idea of an incarnate god uh, i i feel like what we are talking about is consciousness the difference between beingness awakeness and non-beingness the the kingdom of heaven the the total experience of being the essential experience of connection is accessible to all human beings on a personal level and the image of the christ of the flesh god the god made flesh is a moniker of this concept that there is an aspect of human consciousness that is essentially divine uh, the the, the Beyond the material biochemical self, beyond the primal drives, there is an essential whole. There is access to an essential whole. Do you think that's right? I think there's, there's something special about human beings. 
um, something special that means we don't just want to know how things work. We want to know what they mean. We want to know what we mean. They want, we want a bigger picture into which we fit. And so I think if you like, we could say that there's something special about human beings that makes us quest for meaning and significance. And these are really important things. Why is it? Why do you think it's important that we look for meaning and significance? Why, why do you think that's an important drive? Well, I suppose the psychologists would simply say to us that we function much better when we feel we found meaning. meaning. But I think, I think we need to go deeper than that. If you're a Christian, you'd say something like this. You'd say, well, look, we, we, we bear God's image and that really is about some innate homing drive, homing instinct to find our way back to God. But this this quest for meaning really is there. It's about, you know, we really need to look beyond the world and see if there's something there which makes sense of us that actually helps us position ourselves on a bigger map of possibilities and actually gives us a sense of who we are, how we can make a difference to things that also empowers us as individuals to try and make this world a better place. You think that that drive, the drive to have meaning is an argument for meaning. I think that um, there's, no, there's no doubt that we do quest for meaning. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there's a meaning to be found, and it doesn't tell us what that meaning is if it's there. But it's saying there's something about us. We're instinctively looking for, for meaning in life, just as we look for food, you know, something about us as human beings. And that's, that's something we need to wrestle with, because for me, science is great in so many ways, but it doesn't help us find this extra dimension. And you were talking about that a moment ago. And, and if we can't find that extra dimension, we, we aren't really fulfilled as human beings. We're looking for something, we sense it's there, but science doesn't deliver it. So do we give up or do we start looking somewhere else? It's an interesting metaphor, the idea that uh, uh, early thinkers assumed that the earth was the centre and now present-day thinkers or or present-day dogma is that man is at the centre. My my fear of uh, atheism is that if there is nothing else... If man is all, if this is all there is, the material, the mechanical, then why not individualism? Then why not materialism? Then why humanitarianism? Because it feels nice, because it's nice to be nice to people. For me, without some sense of a deeper truth, for me, there is only hedonism. For me, there is only indulgence. And, and, and that I think is, but I feel that that's an important point because i think that the culture that we live in is telling us continually i don't think that you know that we need to throw off the shackles of an overbearing church anymore certainly not in you know great britain or the united states of america in 2017 for all the ra- mad ranting of the westboro baptist church or or you know and i of course speak from the privileged position of a sort of a white person who's male and heterosexual and who's not been on the arse end of condemnation mm-hmm. as a result of you know sort of my particular persuasions but for me, it feels like that we are no longer yoked by religious ideologies, but by the subsequent secularization of those ide- ideologies and their utilization by sovereign state power uh, and, and, and more than that, I suppose, global powers that cast human beings as pr- primarily as consumers of material goods and, co- and consumers of services whose function, whose role, whether no matter what it is ideologically, is actually a passive role as sort of uh, as just as organisms that to be sustained, to survive, to consume, and then to perish. 
Well, I, I think that's really exciting because I agree with an awful lot of what you've said. There's a, there's a real tendency for us to be individuals. And what we need is a worldview, a way of thinking which says, no, no, there's a deeper view, there's a higher view, which says, no, you're part of something bigger and you need to figure out what that is and transcend yourself. Stop making the universe like you and try and let the universe tell you what you ought to be like. But, you know, that, that, that's something really, really important because it seems to me that we live in a culture which tends to dehumanize when it says it's humanizing. It talks all about making us nicer people, making us happy, but actually it's reducing us from critical thinking people simply to people who are passive and who, uh, you know, in effect eat happy pills, and mm. that's it. We need to, in effect, be able to be the people we're meant to be, and that means transcending those limits. Why do you think that Christianity is the right way of doing that? Do you not think that Christianity is now sullied by its various historical repurposings like you know crusades or being on the wrong side of too many arguments like you know like uh, you know the second world war and the the holocaust you know isn't there aren't there too many Aren't there too many examples of Christianity, Christendom and institutions born of Christian theology uh, becoming, I don't know, tyrannical, abusive and bigoted for Christianity to be salvaged? Or would you say that those things were as a result of other human impulses and repurposing as opposed to some essential Christian thing? I would say that Christianity, like every human institution, has messed up, but sometimes it does good stuff. And it's kind of a way acknowledging when it went wrong and at the same time saying it got some things right. But I think for me, the, the truth is, is deeper than this and actually it's very, very unsettling. It's not that Christianity is bad or good in parts or that atheism is bad in good parts. Actually, there's something about us that in effect everything we touch as human beings has this capacity to go very, very badly wrong. And that, for me, is, is a real concern. <laughs> there seem, if, 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 if we are so great, why is the world such a mess? It's, it's all about this mismatch between the way we think about ourselves and actually the impact we're having on history and on our planet. And so I guess I'm looking for a way of thinking that, in effect, says, look, we've got to address the fact there's something... There's something wrong with us which needs to be engaged. And that, for me, is, is, is a central theme of, well, Christianity certainly, but I'm sure other faiths as well, to face up to the way we really are and ask, what are you going to do about this? Get rid of the delusion, say we've got to deal with this because the world's in a mess and actually we're the guys who've made that happen. So you feel like that on one level we have drives such as the drive to have meaning and this is a sort of a positive drive that we have to pursue and understand its veracity. But yet on the other hand, there are these... Like, cause I'm assuming when you talk about like you know a humankind making a mess of the planet and it would be difficult to query that, uh, that's as a result on some level of basic personal drives such as avarice or lust, things that can be understood on that lav level. What do you suppose is the distinction between these types of drives? One, why would one have priority over another? One, why would we take one set of drives as having some sort of uh, divine authority or authorship and, another, and the other drives as being sort of somehow bogus, lumpen matter that we've been inadvertently 
saddled with. Well, I guess if you feel you're being pulled in two directions, you've got to mm-hmm. ask which direction is right. Uh, and, and for me, I mean, the way I would make sense of this, uh, and obviously this is up for debate, but the way I'd make sense of this is to say that um, we are pulled upwards by a love of God which makes us want to do things that want to be better people, and we're dragged down by something else, which is radical self-centeredness, which says, I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. And in effect, it's, it, I mean, in the New Testament, you have this very strange metaphor, but it's very interesting, of dying to yourself. And I think that's getting at this idea of stopping putting yourself at the centre of the universe and being, if you like, decentered or displaced by something that's bigger. And when you stop seeing the universe as orbiting around you, then actually that gives you the possibility of seeing a, a, things in proper perspective and doing better things. I like that idea of dying unto oneself. I like the idea of being born again, meaning that you know that, that we have to transcend the material mm. flesh body. Uh, do you like this is you know like do you look at things as being both metaphorical and somehow literal? Do you think of it like oh Christ dying on the cross means the flesh man has to die, the ape man has to die, the holy divine man, the the transcendent man has to be born again, resurrected? Do you think of it in those terms? How literal because I'm I'm guessing given your qualifications and your uh, uh, numerous achievements that you I'm trying to wonder what your I'm trying to understand what your perspective of like Christ is like. Do you is that a sort of a human being that you could meet and like chat to and stuff? Yeah, that's great. Can you, can I, you even I, hold yeah, an let, image of Christ in your head? Let, yeah, well, it's hard because it's, it's just a complicated image. But here, here's what I think. Um, you, you've talked about um, metaphors and more literal ways of thinking. What I think is you have some base reality, something happened, history, something like that, and then there are layers of interpretation, and that's about meaning, you see. In other words, historical event, but something that means. I mean, I mean go back to I mean, Roman history. Caesar crosses the Rubicon. Okay, physical event, crossing a river. Deeper meaning, war against Rome. So in other words, you see there's, there's always this issue of the deeper meaning of things. And for me, what New Testament is doing is recounting, hey, these things happened. But it's also saying, and here is their deeper meaning. And what I'm trying to do is hold together in my head some basic stuff and then all this stuff that's layered onto this. And that's where, in my view, it gets really exciting. It's this layer of meaning and value, which actually is the dividend that really makes us exciting. But of course, people would say that we are looking for this meaning because of some ulterior drive that we ourselves have as opposed to any true independent objective meaning. But you saying that about uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon and its implications made me think about a, a more recent hist- uh, recent event, the burning, uh, the, the Grenfell Tower in Kensington. Uh, I wonder why it became so significant. Of course, on a, uh, on a simple material level, the negligence and death of so many people and the subsequent understanding of the negligence Negligence that has led to it seemed in all its various strands to become like a kind of the tower itself now a living cenotaph for all that is wrong and, and, and what happens when a society no longer values basic, um, uh, uh, basic ideas like uh, compassion, altruism, yeah. solidarity, equality. I think that's a really good point. I mean, 
I mean, people are going to write books about this, but what I think is going on here is that people had this sense of unease. There's a lot wrong with our society. Then something happens, and it seems to crystallize all these things. It becomes you know, like a symbol of everything that seems to be wrong. And I think that actually it showed up a lot of stuff that is worrying. And we were talking a moment in the past about how Christianity did some bad stuff, but actually did some good stuff there. The churches were really good in trying to help people out. But for me, that that horrible symbol of a blackened smoking tar. It's not just about a building. It's actually almost like a talisman, a symbol of an exposure. In other words, we've been forced to confront the fact that we aren't the good society, we aren't the good people we thought we were, and leaving us this awful question, what are we going to do about it? If you think that most of the, uh, the, the significance is found in interpreting events as metaphor, as it were, like looking at the inferred significance, then why do you have a literal commitment to Christianity and almost an an allegiance to Christianity historically? Why would the allegiance not be similarly metaphorical? Why would you have uh, one doctrinal allegiance? Well, I think what Christianity is doing with, with its creeds and stuff like that is, is kind of a mapping out a way of looking at things. And it's actually less precise than you might think. It's, it's, trying to, it's trying to, if you like, plant a hedge around a big field and say it's in here that the really important <laughs> stuff is to be found, but there is some freedom of interpretation here. Why did I choose that? Well, I guess because the way I looked at it actually seemed to make most sense of the world around me, and my own experience. But also, it seemed to give me a robust way of criticising myself and making sense of our world. So for me, actually, it's it's not so much I wanted this to be right. It's this deep feeling, this this actually is right. And in the light of that, I, I need to rethink things. What do you mean a robust way of criticising yourself? I think I mean um, someone. I mean, we're having a conversation. Now, supposing you were to say to me, there's certain things you need to know about yourself and I want you to face up to them. Right. And I said, well, look, this, this guy knows what he's talking about. I've got to take this seriously. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's very hard to criticise yourself because there's also some sort of personal agenda there, like I want to make myself better looking or something. But if something outside you is saying, here is what's wrong with you, and you look and say, good, God, this is right. You know, in effect, you've got to go away and take that and do something with it. So if you like, it's almost like holding a mirror up to your face and being shown the way you really are and thinking, I can't go on like this. I've got to do something about this. So it's a motivation for change. And for me, that's a critical element of, in effect, the Christian way of thinking, which is, in effect, we've got to do better. We've got to start all over again. We cannot rest content. I, you've wrote a book or a couple of books about C.S. Lewis, haven't you? And he, he similarly was an atheist who became uh, a committed Christian. I read that book, Mere Christianity, and I like the thing very near the... I like, I, firstly, I like the humour mm. of the book. And I like the idea that we all have, like, one of the, the most important, I think, opening argument of mere Christianity is that we all have a, a sort of a sense of right. What is this standard that we are appealing to when we say, oh, that's not fair, that shouldn't happen? You know, like, why not say, oh, yeah, it's a shame that those people were incinerated in that tower, but that's the capitalist consumerist way. You know, like, there's something in us, like, is appalled. It's happening on a chemical level it's happening on an essential level it's happening on a spiritual level there is an understanding of good of righteousness 
of love. Talk to me about why you think that what C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis's interpretation of Christianity brings us. If you can well, hey, let me just mention two things. It says a lot, but I mean, I like them too, and I think a lot of other people do. But one of the things Lewis is saying is, look, we have this deep sense within us of what's right and what's wrong, and. Either that's arbitrary, which is just making the stuff up, or there's something deeper it's reflecting. And to me, that's important. Let me give you an example. I mean, I look at suffering in the world, like this thing we are just talking about in Kensington. And I say, that is wrong. That's horrible. That's bad. But, I mean, where do I get the idea from? What, what, what standard am I bringing to bear on that? That's some kind of vision of the way things ought to be. Now, where am I getting that from? And, and Lewis's argument is that actually we, we carry that around with us. Like it's a sort of um, a homing instinct of God or something like that. And that, that is a line of thought that really does merit close examination. But here's the other thing that Lewis says. And I, I find this really interesting. He's saying, look, we all have this longing within us for something really significant. And actually, very often when we find something we think is significant, it fails to deliver. You know, it, it, it's a. It, it's well, like maybe it's some sex or some drugs or some material object. You think I really got to have this power. I've got to have this car. And then the next position. day, the next day, you know, it's, it's all gone. And Lewis is saying that this is in effect an indication we are looking for something really significant that's going to last, something really corresponding to what our heart wants, the way things are. And actually, again, he's just saying, look, if you understand God in this way, that is what this is all about. So obviously, I, I've paraphrased them hopelessly and condensed them ridiculously, but, but those kind of arguments really, they open up lines of thinking which just can't be shut down because there's something in them. Yes, the yearning is real and the standard is mm. real. And I liked it when C.S. Lewis said in that book, you know, you could say various cultures have various understandings of uh, like, you know, like how many wives it's OK to have. But there is no culture where it's a, where a man is lauded for running away in battle or betraying people that have been kind to him. That there is that there seems to be a universal standard. And when people don't abide by that universal standard, we have uh, words for them, you know, that they're mentally ill mm. or that. So this it's like that so there's sort of a moral standard like you know but Dawkins like who's I suppose the archbishop of atheism or even the pope I suppose archbishop archbishop don't do Richard Dawkins justice would say that these are evolved impulses but for sociological reasons that it's proven that we lived as hunter-gatherer for thousands and thousands of years that we've evolved from uh, simian creatures that would have had similar social obligations and requirements that would have uh, bred into us over you know millennia millennia uh, altruism kindness that which we now like we get a, a, a warm dose in the heart when we're kind to another person, but that's simple, a simple evolutionary, uh, I don't know, an evolutionary biscuit to encourage us to be kind for the pack. You got anything that can go up well, against that? I, I think one of the points here would be that, look, um, human thinking is a product of evolution, according to Richard Dawkins, but that doesn't invalidate it in any way. And the point is that if you're a philosopher, you'll use rational argument to either argue there is a God or there is not a God. But the fact that there's an evolutionary history here does not invalidate those thought processes that we use. So I think there's a danger here of mm. kind of way over-interpreting things. So in effect, somehow you're saying because there's an evolutionary history, that makes it invalid. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't. It just, just sets it in context. And the other issue I'd want to say is that, I mean, evolution may select for survival advantages, but it doesn't really select for telling the truth. And yet for us, telling the truth really is important. And again, it's almost as if we are supervening our evolutionary history and saying... Supervening, what does that mean? Well, you know, in effect, leaving it behind and saying we want better than this because there are big questions we need to answer. And if our 
evolutionary history stops us asking those or answering them, well, we're going to do better than that. So evolution and the study of uh, the evolution of our species, that doesn't contradict the idea of uh, like a... Or, or utopian ideas or the idea of God or the idea of intelligent design or the idea of creation. It uh, simply describes the mechanics by which these things happen. And all of that, again, like I like that thing where you said it's like ideas that are hedged in. You know, like that when I think of our limited ability to understand uh, space and time and even having to understand time in terms of space, that how can we possibly interpret the way that evolution takes place, the way that astronomy takes place, ideas too vast to be comprehended by the consciousness of uh, a, a, a mammal, even one with a, a divine spark. Now, like uh, um, this, are you didn't you have like debates with Christopher Hitchens? Because I like Christopher Hitchens... A lot. Like I've seen that man like debating, and I think he's a, a real beauty. And and like I think he was a sort of he must have been an incredible opponent. Tell, tell me. Well, he was. He, I mean, uh, I mean, I liked Christopher Hitchens as a human being. He has great use of language, much better than I have. And and he's got some wonderful one-liners. Again, you know, wish I could speak like that. Um, but I, I, what I found in debating him was that um, in effect, um, you had a conclusion reached without very often <laughs> the argument bit beforehand. And I, I find that puzzling. But the really interesting thing is this, that um, Christopher Hitchens, in, in, in effect, saying, look, we need to ditch God and move on, really wants us to move back to the rationalism of the Enlightenment. If you look at um, God's Not Great, the final chapter, it's almost, let's go back to the golden age of reason, to the 18th century. But you see, we've all moved away from that because it just doesn't work. We've discovered it's not that simple. Does that, uh, the golden age of reason, mm. does that lead to the apotheosis of man? Does that say like that we, like there is no God, we are God? Is that, where does it lead us to ontologically? I would say historically it does lead you to that because in, in many ways writers like um, Ludwig Feuerbach and others who are saying, in effect, we are God, you know, are taking that heritage and saying reason determines everything, therefore we do not need any help for anything, we can do this all, we are the master of all things. And so it seems to me that that, that that is a real danger because if we are completely in charge and are not accountable to anyone, well, you know, we just do what we want and look where that gets us. We need something beyond us <laughs> to say there are limits to what you can do because otherwise you're going to mess up even more than you might otherwise do. So it's a personal ideology as opposed to a system for global design, your Christianity. It's for dealing with your own morality. It's for dealing with your own life forces libido you're like that's that's how you see it as opposed to sort of a a, a system for designing nations or you know beyond well, I nations would say, and again the people listening to this will say well look this isn't good enough but i would say that christianity is first and foremost a transformation of the individual but you see, if an individual suddenly has a vision of what life's all about and they start sharing it with friends and family, you begin to have a community with a vision. And once a community has a vision, well, then you can do things. So in effect, I think it begins with individuals and then radiates outwards. So you know, if you look at Latin America, for example, where you have um, uh, Marxism not really having ca capturing people's imaginations, but you have Pentecostalism, in effect, capturing people's imaginations and, in effect, it builds up through individuals, their families, their friends, and actually begins to become a powerful social force for change, but it begins with the individual. It doesn't stop there, but it starts there. It starts with the individual. You know when you said, like, Christopher Hitchens, uh, uh, God rest his soul, like, like uh, was arguing for a kind of a a nostalgic return to like a like a, a golden age of reason. 
Um, like, don't you think people will think, yeah, but there's a, like that Christie, like the, all the, all these uh, desert books are dead now. They have no relevance. With there can be no progressivism within these creeds that they were products of a particular time that are defunct as a result of technological and scientific advance. What specifically do you think that's... Uh, do you, uh, what is it? What? How do you think that this is a progressive ideology as opposed to sort of a historical, nostalgic, uh, obsolete one? Yeah, I, I like that question. I, I think one thing I would say, which, which may help us get our discussion going here, is, is that... Um, <laughs> what do you mean? I've been trying my hardest. You're doing well, doing well. Um, what I, I think you could say is this. Look, Christianity or, or the Old Testament, New Testament map out lots of things, including love. And love is embedded and exam- given examples in that historical context. And in fact, you and I are left saying, look, this, this idea is love, faithfulness, they're really important. But in our context, we might actualize them in slightly different ways. In other words, if you like, you have an ideal which finds its um, exemplification or its enactment in different contexts and different ways. And so for me, as I read the New Testament, I might well find myself saying at time, well, that's how they did that then, and that's, that's good to know. But I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. How do I do it now? Because things have changed. So in effect, it's a challenge to make the transition from that context to this context and try and bring the same principles to bear on where I am. So if it's something about Christianity's essence that appeals to you and and you talk very specifically of love and, uh, you know, sort of love thy neighbour as you love thyself and uh, love God with all your heart, sort of the basics, like then... uh, we're aware that culturally we have to go, oh, bloody hell, Christianity has been used as a bit of a cudgel to bash about like uh, sexual minorities and different faiths. We have to sort of apologise for that. Don't you think that, uh, or or, or acknowledge at least that that was a failing, don't you think then, uh, Alistair, that what we're actually talking about is a de facto perennialism where all religious ideologies have at their heart this idea of unity, this idea of yearning, this longing to go home, this longing for a wholeness that is not exclusive to Christianity but can be found in the Bhagavad Gita, can be found in all of these great books and even in folk tales and things that are scratched out on walls that are about we are one, we are one, the self is an illusion, die unto the self. You know, that, that, So what, do you think that's Right. I think there's something in that because if you look at J.R. Tolkien, you know, the, the Hobbit, Lord yeah, of the Rings, yeah. I mean, he, he reflected long and hard and said, look, um, it's almost as if because we're human beings, we think in certain ways. We sell, tell certain kinds of stories, whether they are fairy stories or religious stories. And for Tolkien, the big question was this, what big picture of human nature helps us make sense of these stories that we tell and helps us to figure out which of them can be trusted? So for me, there is no problem at all that different people think in different ways and but there are similar patterns there for me the really interesting question is what picture of human nature makes sense of that and if that's right what does it tell us about who we are what we're meant to be doing and so on so in other words we really need a big picture of human nature to make sense of that but also help us figure out what else we're meant to be thinking and doing and you think that there is something particular about Christianity that serves that function if we are able to discard the the, the sort of the cultural artefacts that it were clad in as a result of its inception. I think what you could say is that at the heart of Christianity, this basic idea that we're made in God's image and so we reach up and try and be good and try and love God, 
but we're sinful and kind of we're dragged down. And we kind of have this, this dual aspect, if you like. And we're trying to figure out how to weaken one, strengthen the other, and in effect, rec- be, not being utopian, saying, hey, we can change everything, become perfect. It's in effect living with this limitation, this, this influence, and saying, how can we try and do good even though we're constantly being dragged down by something over which we don't have total control? Isn't that one of the great challenges of Christianity is that the, 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 because there is a, the, the utopian idea of an all-encompassing, omniscient, omnipresent God that's still the duality that you've just described, the Manichaean, is that right? The Manichaean idea of good and evil mm. is contained within that. Doesn't that sort of further limit or impede the the veracity of the Christian theology because it sort of hasn't dealt with that idea that sort of within the whole like you know I showed you before this book that I've got here about the self uh, it's an analysis of some William Blake engravings and one of the particular engravings of this book let me just quickly have it it's called An Encounter with the Self uh, a Jungian commentary on William Blake's illustrations by Edward F. Edinger who is a sort of a Jungian analysis in there there's one of Blake's illustrations taken from the book of Job is of the behemoth and of the Leviathan and in it it talks of how Yahweh the word of God in that book uh is not necessarily essentially good but that man's actions are integral to the goodness even of god uh, is that comparable to he has no hands but yours that we are required to be that, that if we don't manifest love if we do not manifest beauty if we do not have a vision for a beautiful world then god becomes irrelevant or even malevolent I think that the key point that emerges from what you've just said is this. We need a vision of something exciting, something transformative to make us go and want to do something. And um, one of the questions is, how do we get that vision? How do we sustain it? And for me, if if I put it in very, very personal terms, um, at least my vision of God makes me want to do things, become a better person, make this world a better place. And, you know, maybe that is, in effect, an extension of God's activity in the world. I don't know. I think it sounds a bit arrogant, but I mean, but what what is happening is that it's almost as if uh, I feel that God is saying, you do this stuff. You're meant to. That's why you're here. Get on with it. And again, it's, it's uncomfortable, but maybe that's good for me. It's very interesting because while I've been, like the reason I started doing these podcasts, Alistair, is so I was going to SOAS University and studying religion in global politics under my teacher, Sean Hawthorne, wicked. Uh, like, and, well, and the reason I, I wanted to... I, I sense that there were many things I had an intuitive understanding of that I needed academic backing for. And one thing that's come up from all these guests, and there have been some tremendous guests on here. We've had like Yanis Varoufakis, Naomi Klein, Adam Curtis. I mean, like a sort of a diverse and intriguing uh, pantheon of, of, of guests. Mm-hmm. And like one thing that's uh, recurring is... We need a vision. There is a lack of vision. There seems to be a cultural acceptance that this is a kind of end of days in terms of one model is failing, at least in our Western narrative. God knows what it's like if you're Chinese and you're in the midst of a sort of a powerful, thrusting economic dragon or if you're in a robust and newly empowered Russia. But I'm talking about sort of, I suppose... Uh, Anglophones and people in sort of nearby European countries. There's this sense that consumer capitalism is failing, mass media. 
idea is failing, that we're no longer sold on the idea that through the uh, uh, accretion or, uh, and gradual acquisition of products and, uh, that we're going to make ourselves happy. That idea is somehow dying. And at the root of that idea was, uh, I suppose, a kind of a materialistic, individualistic notion that this is it. This is your life. Fulfill your sen- Fulfill your senses. Fulfill your desires. Now, like, so uh, it's, I think, likely that a vision will necessarily be transcendent and like secularism before it, somehow be sourced from the religious, from the religious, because what value do humanitarian arguments have without Christian ideas like do unto others as you do yourself and we're a brother with a man and all that. So, like, you know, it's likely, I think, that we will be returning to scriptures from around the world to say, well, what the... Uh, what are we meant to be doing here? What are we going to do now that we know certainly that that capitalism becomes the expression of the worst aspects of mankind? That uh, that socialism, without some kind of vision that includes unity beyond a kind of economic idea of unity, will falter and fail. Like it seems that it is going to have to be sourced from this, but I suppose one of the ways that I always feel trapped is that in the end, you one discusses bureaucracies and how to distribute vegetables and <laughs> who's going to run the waterworks. You know, it's very hard to maintain it unless I suppose we have reference to the idea that there's some supreme entity expressing itself through our consciousness. I can see that that is a transforming and transformative idea, but I do wonder how within this sort of um, dusty lexicon of, uh, of, of Protestantism, how we're going to revive and engage young people yeah. staring at screens. I think you're right. I mean, we're, we're living in a kind of age of fading dreams and dying visions. And I think people are looking for hope. And I think that's a key word to fasten on to because hope is not about being optimistic. Hey, everything's going to be okay. No, no. Hope is about saying things might actually get a lot worse. But there <laughs> is meaning. And once we see that and embrace it, then actually we can cope with whatever gets thrown at us because we feel we can do something with it. And there's a bigger vision of which we are part. And that empowers us to keep going even when the world seems to be falling to bits around us. That Yanis Varoufakis, when he was in here, he said, like, you know, because I was, sort of saying, he, I think he's an atheist, and he said, look, it like he does it, he said to me, it, it's not important whether spirit preceded matter. Spirit is here now, and we have to listen to it. So he's not sort of saying, oh, we're a, you know, a, foul and pestilent cong- uh, congregation of vapours, is that there is something, there is something that's not being addressed. There's something we're trying to address through material means that isn't succeeding. I like that Terence McKenna, the sort of uh, cosmonaut of consciousness, he took a lot of, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware, like, you know, experimented with plants and stuff. He said uh, that the scientism view amounts to give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest of the miracle being how the like the universe and the rules for the universe spontaneously appear but and this is and then we'll describe the mechanical process yeah. so there clearly is need for some sort of access access to the sublime the divine the transcendent but how to bring that into an environment that is cynical I think that uh, I think of, of that really rather good film, uh, Modern Times, with Charlie Chaplin. Mm. And one, one of the images that stays in my mind is people inside the machine. In other words, the machine is, is in effect imprisoning them. And that, for me, is what materialism does. It simply limits us to material reality. It 
forbids us from having a bigger vision than what the material world offers us. And yet there's something about us human beings that says we need more than this. And I think that that deep sense we have is telling us something very important about who we are and what, are, what we're all about. And it just seems to me that we really need to leave behind purely materialist account of things and say there is a bigger picture here, we need to embrace it. And when we do that, we become properly human and lead authentic and meaningful lives. And going back to that discussion we are having towards the beginning, for me, one of the really interesting questions is, how do I hold science and faith together? And the way, mm, yeah, the way I do it, well, let me tell you what I say. Look, imagine there's a big picture reality, okay? Maybe science fills in part of it, maybe religion fills in a different part of it, but actually, if you get right, they're enriching, not competing. So it's finding this way of getting these things to talk to each other and enrich each other rather than see them as being enemies or constantly in competition. Is it because people are actually dealing with power uh, that, there's, that there's conflict, that in, in, in religious history people have been like, hold on a minute, we don't want these bloody discoveries. This is going to ruin our power base if we can start explaining away the great mysteries of our early books with bones and evolution. And from the scientific perspective, if we continually draw attention to the fact that no one knows where consciousness comes from, no one knows how the universe started, no one knows why we're sentient, like, you know, like that the, the people are trying to preserve their power base instead of endeavouring to find a world vision and a an, an idea that can bring us together and help us to understand our purpose is it because people are more interested in power than truth it could well be i mean for me i mean one of the good things about this moment in time is that people are well skeptical in a good sense about religion they know it can go wrong but they also sense there's something there can we get the good bits not the bad bits like yeah. science is great but hey science gave us atom bombs it gave us weapons of mass destruction again you know you can see how that could go wrong so can we find a way of taking the good bits of each and bringing them together in a bigger picture of reality for well, me that's something to think about I think it is something to think about and when you start returning to the, that uh, quote that you like the you know die unto oneself the idea that if you let go of your personal and selfish drives, then you will be better positioned to participate in utopia, whether it was endeavouring in the fields of technology mm. or medicines or theology. Uh, like, but if your motivation deep down is, oh my God, this is going to be brilliant when I write this book or when I come up with this, I'll be rich. If it's some sort of version of personal, hmm, I don't know, indulgence as opposed to salvation. Hey, what's your actual personal experience of like God then? Like when you're in prayer or meditation? I think for me, my, my deepest experience of God was ages ago when I went to visit Iran just before the Iranian revolution. And we drove through wow. the desert in the middle of the night and the bus broke down. I mean, we did that because you know, it was cool at night. But the bus broke down and we got out of the bus and in the middle of the desert, silent, solemn, still, and the heavens blazing. N nothing like what you get in England. It was beautiful. And I was just overwhelmed by a sense of something vast and immense. But a vastness that I felt in some way I knew a little bit, and that was enough to really get me excited and overwhelmed at the same time. This is numinism, is it? Like That's the numinous. Sense... That's right, yeah. The sense of being overwhelmed by something so vast and yet at the same time realising it may be vast, but nevertheless you've got a handle on it, and that helps you cope. Yes, like my understanding of one interpretation of the end of the Bhagavad Gita is that Arjuna says to Krishna, I remember... That somehow that contained within the individual is the whole, that somewhere within us we understand this truth. What is this meaning of God made man in his image if on some level we are not intimately connected 
to the divine, that our consciousness in... I sometimes think, who is the experiencer? Who is it that's experiencing this sensation of being Russell in a material universe? Who is it that's uh, uh, looking at these sights, smelling these smells, that's uh, feeling these feelings and wanting this desire? And sometimes through prayer and meditation, I have a release and a relief from it that feels whole and complete and beautiful. Uh, sometimes it is uh, brought about by some external avatar looking at nature, thinking, oh, my God, that's mm. so, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's I enjoy this uh, immensely. But like uh, with my history with addiction, it was. Pri- I feel like, you know, when you talked a while ago about the yearning, that mm-hmm. the yearning may migrate and settle upon many external phenomena, but ultimately its aim is union, wholeness. Uh, like, I feel that like my addiction to like that I've, ha- I've had permutating addictions. Mm. Initially, it's drugs. Then it's sex and food. Then it's relationships that are managed in a certain way. And ultimately, I discover ah, all forms of desire are the engined by the desire for union, for connection, for oneness, for wholeness. And I think that it is the exclusion of spiritual principles from contemporary culture and contemporary conversation that has led us into something that feels worse somehow than nihilism, that feels worse than than there is no meaning, but there is like an anti-meaning, a negative meaning. Well, our culture is saying, look, you, you, you will find fulfilment in the material. That, that's an order. Mm-hmm. And, and our laws are just saying, look, um, we can't and we don't and we won't. You know, that there is something bigger that you are forbidding us to find. And in many ways, I think that wall is beginning to fall down and people are beginning to ask deeper questions of meaning than they have in the past. And maybe that's a good thing. I've got some good questions here that uh, Gareth, the producer of the show, has put, and I'd like to ask them. Can the roots of Christianity be explained scientifically? I'm sure you could say that, for example, the, the, the commandment to love others as you love yourself actually is a sort of complex variant of some evolutionary principle for preserving either the species or your particular kin group. But what I want to say is that actually um, a lot of these things are quite anti-Darwinian. To give you an example, um, let, let's take one. That, for example, the Old Testament is very keen. You know, Widows, orphans, you look after them. And in many ways for me, um, both Judaism and Christianity are articulate an ethos which is saying the weak and the vulnerable. Okay, some say get rid of them because that's good for the species. No, no, they're precious. They're important. You hang on to them. So I'd want to say there are points at which there's a very powerful counter-proposal, which is to say that maybe if we understand evolution, we could make ourselves invulnerable by breeding out um, people we don't like. But actually, we've got to learn to love even those who we find are awkward, difficult, or actually not something that helps us survive as a species. Hey, I know in Islam also they're down with the let's look after the widows and orphans. I think it's a very it's a central mm. Islamic creed. Okay, so that's another perennial idea. Take care of the vulnerable, mm. serve, do duty. That, I like that question. Uh, this is interesting question. Why, says Gareth Roy, are religion and faith destined to play a central role in the 21st century? Why are religion and faith... I mean, I can't believe he's well, come up with good this question, question, Gareth. Um, let, let, let's, let, let's try and answer it. I mean, my... my, my Not are they. No, well... But they are. I mean, but okay. why are they? Why are they? Well, I guess because they're both important, but I suppose that's, that's a circular answer. But really what I'm saying is, I think, you know, if you think of what, what are the two big forces in Western culture, well, there are lots, but I think two of them would be science and religion. Maybe we'd, we'd, we might say science and technology, maybe we say religion and spirituality, 
but nevertheless, we've got this sense of these two major cultural presences. And the issue, I think, is, are they going to be at loggerheads or is there some way in which we can achieve a synthesis or a dialogue or a conversation which actually allows us to take the best of both and move on? Ooh, I heard something recently, maybe it was Eric Fromm or something, through thesis and antithesis meets and we find synthesis. This is where we have a chance. This is where we can progress. Yes, clearly this is what's required because it's, I completely understand, I don't completely understand, but I'm very sympathetic to the atheistic uh, position because of all, many mm. of the things we've discussed, religious war, secular violence, bigotry, crusades, ransacking, present-day ideological wars. But for me, I think that all of these things we're describing are human tendencies towards negative aspects of our nature. And what's being espoused uh, with uh, religions correctly used is the, the very opposite, the subduing, overcoming, the surrendering to something higher within our nature, within and without us, where those kind of uh, taxonomies somehow dissolve into unity and that we are part of it. And it's not just some blissful, blissed out trip of an experience. It's a, it's a code. There's a code. There's a behavioural code. There's something that we can live. There's something that's trying to realise itself through us. I have a personal experience of that. So what are you doing as a job then? You are, what happens to you in the daytime? In the daytime, um, I'm, I'm professor at Oxford University. You're an I'm, actual Oxford I'm University Ox- professor. I am, I'm afraid, yes. My God. And you just wear your normal stuff. Yeah, sure. It looks good, doesn't it? <laughs> You're there in what? One of those buildings? One of those buildings near the... Sort of a Gothic-looking thing, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's actually near, near the Radcliffe Observatory up near Woodstock Road. It, it's a nice place. Is there a quad... Uh, there is no quad there. We wish there were, but there scarves. Is, uh, there are scarves and stuff. But basically, I have an office in which I try and do my work. I want to come there. I want yeah, to look around that yeah, place. Well, do do. What do you feel like when place. you're? What are they like these students? Do you have atheist students or do people do? What is your? Well, course? we have we have students from all kinds of backgrounds: Faculty. atheists, um, Muslims, Christians, everybody. And one of the key things is actually while at Oxford, that they're, they're, they're they're going to ask questions, and it's a wonderful experience to see people being able to talk about things which outside that context they might not do Ooh, at all so exciting well so who's there and what they said what do you mean when was the last time something like that happened where someone said something from bloody hell that's a bit heavy well you know basically students are very happy to talk and uh, they like to talk in private you know and they but they, they they want to talk about big questions in other words you know what's it all about them because there's this sense that the received wisdom of the recent past isn't doing the job and they're looking for something better Yes. Well, Alistair McGrath, thank you very much because I feel that the purpose of this podcast is to convey and relay esoteric information in a way that's easily digestible and easily understood. And I think that we've done that in this interview. Are you happy with it? I'm very happy. It's been really great fun chatting to you. Thank you. It's a great joy. Thank you for making uh, time for us. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.